right, here we are. Welcome back. There it is. I'm on cue. The signature, the signature startup. It's not a, it's not a sign off. It's a startup. So yeah, I, I know. well done. Well done. I, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning. It's only taken me 40 episodes to figure out what episodes. my role is in this podcast, but I'm trying the best I can. And who know? are you? I'm Ollie. Oh, and I'm Scott. And this is Science In Between. Science In Between. And in this. In Between. Oh, see, that's nice. We should try yeah. to incorporate that a little bit more. You're singing or whatever yeah. that was. That was not singing, but okay, fair enough. It was something. It had a little harmonic something. tone to it, you know? So this week, we thought we'd start our exploration of learning theories. And we thought we'd start with the, you know, the big dog, the granddaddy, three, the friend three, of the show. Three claps. Three claps for the big dog. Three claps for the big dog, John Dewey. John and Dewey. and here. John Dewey. Um, I, I think there should be a song about John Dewey. Like, there, oh, there, I can't. Be, there must be a song about John. Sure, Dewey. we'll have to. Yeah, we'll have to be. get our producers on that. Yeah, get our get our fact checkers and our our staff. Our staff there. get them on the the John Dewey song. If they if there's not one that exists, they should write one. That's right. Yeah. Or maybe maybe this is a thing for our audience to do is to um, is to write a John Dewey song in our in our honor. Write a John Dewey song. So the reason why we're starting with John Dewey, uh, besides you know being he being really cool, is the fact that uh, this episode's going to drop all, really close to when he passed away. Um, so he was. Uh, we'll, we'll just give some little factoids about him. He was born October twentieth, eighteen fifty nine, in Burlington, Vermont, one of my favorite places on the planet. Um, and he, uh, died June 1st, 1952 in New Which York. Which is why City. we're doing this. Right, right there. And, uh, just some like historical stuff about, uh, about John Dewey. This is some of the stuff we've gleaned from Wikipedia and other things. Um, but he, uh, went to the university of Vermont. Um, and then, is that right? He went to the university yep. and then, yep. yep, yep. Uh, and then he went and taught high school. He was a high school teacher, which, you know, I didn't know that about him, but that's pretty darn cool. Right. Like, I think yeah. I don't think of John Dewey as teaching high school, but he was teaching high school uh, for two years in Oil City, Pennsylvania. Look at that. Right. Right down, right down the street from where they found uh, oil in, in Titusville right there. Oil yeah, City. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and after two years, he decided ah, this isn't for me. So then he goes and teaches elementary school for a year and then again realizes mm, not so much. And then he was a principal before going back to school um, and uh, he got his Ph.D. at John Hopkins. So, which is pretty cool. And then he went off and uh, accepted a faculty pos position at your alma mater right there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, a small uh, personal connection, a friend of the show, John Dewey, uh, <laughs> the, the building that the college of education is in at the university of Michigan is uh, the former school lab school at Michigan that John Dewey uh, founded. And so I used to take classes in the rooms that he taught in and that the classrooms were in the, there were a couple of faculty members on the first floor who had old fireplaces from the original building and they had mosaics around the fireplaces that were nursery rhymes. So they were like kindergarten classrooms. So they had like little Bo Peep uh, mosaics around the fireplace. Wow. So uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty wild. It's a, it's a beautiful building. If you're ever in Ann Arbor, you should uh, go check out the college of education though. Now they've probably gutted it and turned it all into like class and, 
and steel and stuff but who you, knows? You, you know it's it's uh, that whole laboratory school concept i mean it's very you know it's very old school um but i love it i went i actually worked at a lab school when i was going and getting my master's degree i i worked i got an mat and uh University of Pittsburgh had a lab school uh, partnership with a school called the Falk School, mm. which is kind of like a private-ish school. They um, always are. They always are. Um, but it was a pretty diverse place. It was from yeah. you know elementary school to middle school, um, and I taught uh, middle school math and science there. And that whole concept of the lab school, where you know the a lot of the professors would you know do work there and would teach there. Uh, my one of the my mentor there was a, a faculty member at uh in the school of education so very cool concept i don't know did he come up with the lab school is that his creation um, that's or a good that... question i don't know the answer to that i mean certainly he founded um and i don't know i, I think the, the university of chicago was maybe the first place to actually be ca- called a laboratory school so maybe he did invent the idea i don't know or he and his we were just talking about this he and his um, colleague, uh, who is the, the woman who ran the school and was the practitioner that he worked with. Um, and I'm still trying to track her name down to my shame. Um, but well, that's uh, like, I don't think that's your shame. I think it's just the shame of the field and the, sh- yeah. the shame of education in general, because I mean, th- he's one of the most cited th- psychologists, authors in you know the 20th century, but we can't find the name of his female colleague right and that that to me is troubling and he's published just another little factoid scott published 700 articles so that's almost as many as me so that's he's very prolific he's very prolific i think the two of us combined 700 in 140 different journals yeah and and he had some books too couple 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 two tree uh 40 books yeah so there you go yeah, well, I remember um, it used to be the case. It probably isn't anymore because of the, the um, you know, the way that libraries have shifted. But it used to be there was like whole shelves in in the library that were just John Dewey books, right? Like you go in and like this is the John Dewey shelf, and yeah. they didn't name it or anything. But it's just he had so he did so much publishing. It's really pretty extraordinary that like to imagine how much writing that guy was doing to to do all that. Whew. It is pretty amazing. And, and the, the fact that, you know, he's doing this work at the turn of the century, you know, he's, you know, doing the work at the university of Chicago at like 1894 or something to the early 1900s. And then he moves on to, you know, Columbia where he does like the bulk of his work. Right. Um, But the stuff, and this is what we're going to spend the bulk of our episode. We're not going to just fanboy on his, uh, his life. I'm just going to read you his Wikipedia entry. Right. I mean, we, we've kind of done a little bit of that, but we're, yeah, that's not, but where that's, the, that's not what the bulk of this episode is going to be. Yeah. Um, we're going to like, I think it's going to kind of echo, right? We're going to share some, some things that we thought, like some of our favorite quotes from some of his books, and then echo back to where this kind of relates to um, in different places we've talked about in the last 39 episodes, because we've talked, we've covered a lot of territory. Mm-hmm. And while we've kind of brought up a bunch of, of, of things along the way, we want to show how much that stuff is influenced by John Dewey's work. Cause hmm. I think that's the critical part is that like, Hey, he was talking about this stuff a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago. And this is still stuff that plays out today, which is the the really cool thing. Yes. So you want to take the first stab at something or. 
Um, yeah, I'm happy to do that to be to be the, the guinea pig. I mean, I'm actually going to talk about something that, or, or I'm going to point to something that that you and I have talked about a lot in John Dewey's work, and and that's the idea of perplexity, right? Oh, yeah. So, so so he had um, he had this idea of perplexity and per- perplexity being the state of and I don't have an exact quote because I, I was actually looking for an exact quote definition of this. Um, but the, the, um, the definition that I use is it's the state of not knowing something, but wanting to know something. Um, and he said that this state of perplexity was required for reflection and for thinking. So he sort of talks about both those things um, simultaneously, reflection and thinking as being um, almost like synonymous with each other. But I think, you know, for us, especially in science, um, this seems really central, right? And that a lot of what we do when we think about how to teach science is how do we establish an environment where kids are perplexed, right? Which is to say that they don't understand, but they want to understand. And when you do that, it forces thinking, it forces students to really say, like, what what do I know here? What can I, what, what can I do to understand this thing better. And it, and, you know, that gets translated into motivation, but, um, you know, intrinsic motivation, I guess you'd say. Um, but I think it's much more interesting to leave it as, as perplexity, as this sort of state of being and, and frankly, interaction with the world and with other people about it. Right. Cause that's what, what, um, what he was, he really focused on. So I, I think this, this idea of perplexity and, and the key to it was, um, was doubt, right? So you had, you have to sort of doubt yourself and doubt what you know, because that's where the reflection comes in. So the, so, so this, this central idea of thinking and reflection and perplexity, uh, were all connected for him. And, and I return to perplexity a lot when I'm trying to help my, my pre-service teachers in particular understand like what, what sort of the goal state that we're going for, um, and I'll, and just to make one connection between that and somebody else who, um, who I think I, I draw on sometimes intellectually, which is, uh, Richard Feynman. And he has a quote that I love that, uh, is the thing that is unusual about good scientists is that while they're doing what they're doing, they are not so sure of themselves as others usually are. They can live with steady doubt. And I, I, you know, it's a, it's a really That's nice a connection. Quote. Yeah. It's an, and it's a nice connection between Dewey's ideas about this perplexity and Feynman's ideas, um, about what good scientists do. So, um, so that, you know, whenever I think of Dewey, I think of perplexity. I, the, the two go t- together, you know, they're peanut butter and jelly for me. Yeah. I think that's a really good starting point. And, the, and I think that the other part that's critical is I think that perplexity is not the same thing as, as just being confused, right? It's not the same thing as just being, I have no idea what's going on. It's the, I think that motivational factor, the desire to figure it out is the critical part for, for me in terms of how he frames that. And the important thing is that John Dewey is not a science educator. Like that's like, he is an educator, right? He's not specific to science education. I mean, we find a lot of value in the, in what he shares and writes. Um, But I think that the important thing is that this is, this is, these are cross cutting themes, not, you know, cross cutting concepts, but cross cutting themes that Mm. uh, should apply to all of learning. Right. And, and I think that's the, you know, I, he talks about this a lot in, in the book, how we think, 
Mm -hmm. And and this is, you know, coming back to the perplexity concept, he says the two limits of every unit of thinking are a perplexed, troubled or confused situation at the beginning and a cleared up, unified, resolved situation at the close. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about this, this growth, this process of a development and that what we want to do is, you know, help to set the stage for this as educators where, you know, we I don't want to say confuse them, but set sit, you know, this is that dissonance, right? That cognitive mm -hmm. dissonance. We're setting up some sort of dissonant moment in which, you know, the students are confronting some of the things that they, and this is kind of dips into the conceptual change, you, right? Kind of. You just like yeah, recapitulated but, conceptual yeah. change there. Yeah. Because right. I was like, bing, 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 my little, right. we're going to come back to that one. Right. Uh, okay. But, but, I, but I think that that's what I think the shift is, and I think he also talks about this because I don't think he's a conceptual change guy per se. No, because no. I, well, yeah, right. Because I think he, what he's trying to do is he, I think he embeds it in giving students problems to solve, problems mm. that are unique to them, right? Mm. And he's very focused on understanding the individual learner and making sure that what we do is tailored you know, to them, not necessarily like, like, you know, that we're doing individualized learning. Yeah, I right? was waiting for that, right? Yeah, no, yeah. but, but what it's, what it is doing is being really mindful of the fact that, you know, students, we're not going to be able to do the same thing with every student that what we're going to have to do is, you know, really craft things that are uh, unique to students that we work with. Yeah. And I mean, this, this uh, sort of gives us a glimpse into the the path we're going down here in terms of learning theory, but, um, but in, you know, Dewey actually met Vygotsky and they were contemporaries. So when we talk about like these different notions of how people learn, you know, there's sort of the Piagetian, um, notions and, and they, they were contemporaries as well. Um, right. and, and Dewey and Vygotsky are much more aligned than Piaget, uh, with each other than, than either is with Piaget. So they, and, and Dewey, you know, it's funny to think about Dewey as a psychologist because I, I tend to think of him as a philosopher. Um, now, that's partly because at, the, at that point, at the turn of that century, um, there, like psychology didn't really exist as a, as a discipline the way that we think of it now. So it was an emerging field. Um, and so philosophy and psychology were, were, um, were not as you know, cleanly separated and not that they're exactly cleanly separated now, but, but they certainly weren't at that point. So this idea of like, who is John Dewey? Um, you know, is he a psychologist, as you say, 93rd most cited psychologist. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I don't even think of him really as a psychologist. I think of him as a philosopher of education and um, I don't know. So. Well, I think that's part of, you know, the development of these, these fields, right? Because mm -hmm. if you go back, psychology, you know, sort of encompassed education, which sort of, you know, all of that was, you know, one big messy ground. And now these sort of have kind of been a little bit more defined, you know, now we have like, you know, instructional technology, we have, you know, I mean, we have so many sub disciplines of education, that um, it's better, a little bit better defined. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, the way, so yeah, so I, this is part of the class that I teach the 552, the teaching and learning class. Um, and which I've taken, which yeah. you, you have in fact taken. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, I, I tend to think of it as really the, that educational psychology emerged out of, I mean, well, now we're getting ahead of our, maybe we're getting over our skis, but right. you know, you know, Thorndike developing educational psychology. Um, and so, so really education, and that's part of the reason I think of Dewey as a philosopher is he see, he's this very umbrella kind of guy and educational psychology actually falls under that, um, for me. But I, but I, I will fully admit that, uh, like I have a, I have a POV here, right? Like I, I have, um, I have a perspective on these different, um, these different takes on education and their impact. Um, because, you know, the other thing to know about John Dewey is his impact on education, uh, really didn't happen much until after his passing, right? So th- one of the things that happened was Thorndike was so influential for a whole bunch of reasons, if we want to get go down that train, um, that a lot of John Dewey's thinking was sort of marginalized into into sort of these lab schools or smaller, uh, you know, pockets where Thorndike and educational psychology became very, very dominant. So, um, but this isn't the Thorndike episode. It's not. It's the John Dewey episode. So we're gonna because yeah. because now I think he's he's uh, clearly. I mean, he always was very influential, but I think his, in, especially in the '60s, his influentialness really rebloomed. Um, and then you know his connection and, and parallel thinking to Vygotsky's, in, I'm sure, only added to that as we got into the you know the '70s and '80s as Vygotsky's work was getting translated into English. So. I guess this is a, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm, I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Um, so why do you think the sixties was the, the reemergence or rediscovery of John Dewey? Do you think it's just like the connection to, cause I mean, he has a very democratic little D democratic right? yeah. uh, perspective on learning and on the individual. And, and I see that, you know, the sixties were sort of, you know, a r- radically democratic. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah, I, I don't know if that's has something to do with it or, but I mean, it, it was certainly a, I mean, yeah, John Dewey was talked when I, when I went to through education classes in the eighties and nineties, and, and then back in again, when I was doing my doctoral work in the early two thousands, um, John Dewey was like everywhere, everywhere you yeah. talked about. And, and I think yeah, if we I go mean, back think... a generation of, of teachers that might not be the case, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the sixties that, I mean, there's probably all sorts of parts of that zeitgeist that that um, that John Dewey aligns with, right? The sort of focus on experience, right? Yep. Like he was very, um, and and the sense of um, like people, the value of of sort of individual and their their rights to, um, I don't know, to sort of be investigators of the world, right? So it was. It was, you know, as you say, little d democratic. Like it was a, it was about um, individuals' ability to to shape their own themselves and their their society, um, and that 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 was sort of part of the central focus of his work. So I can I can totally see the the ethic of uh, you know democratic education and progressive education and liberalism were all sort of, are all sort of built into John Dewey's thinking. And I could see that completely aligning with the, with the, what was happening in the sixties in this sort of response to, you know, post-war America and um, yeah. So. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think let, let me jump into some democracy and education, some yeah. democracy and education. Sorry. Um, here's here's what I think that if, if you've been listening to the show for some episodes, this is going to be like, oh, I hear this, you know, sort of echoing back to things that Scott and Ollie have talked about. So it, this is a little bit of a long one, but I, I won't share all of it. Um, hence the first approach, this is him writing in democracy and education. Hence the first approach to any subject in school, if thought is to be aroused and not words acquired, should be as unscholastic as possible to realize what an experience or empirical situation means with to call to mind the sort of situation that presents itself outside of school, the sort of occupations that interest and engage activity in ordinary life. How awesome is that? Like, it is awesome. It yeah. is like, I mean, and this is so Brian Brown, right? It is so Brian Brown. Mm-hmm. It's like, like, this is like just lifted, you know, and placed right into the Brian Brown world. And it's awesome, you know? Yeah. But it, it, it also, as you're listening to that, it also it, uh, gives you a sense of something else Dewey's famous for, which is his like unparsable prose, right? Like he right. writes in this very, not even of the time, because it is of the time, but it also, even for the time, reads very much like, you know, a, like a philosopher, like yeah. it's really dense um, and, you know, almost awkwardly phrased, but the, but the sentiment is so amazing and beautiful as you it's say. It's a hammer. He, yeah. he, it's basically like it, it's, it's, he's presenting it in, in I think he's craftily, uh, carefully crafts each word and selects each word to like, just hammer it home. Right. Mm-hmm. I like, it's just like, here it is. Like, I'm just going at everybody. This is what, you know, cause he's, he's like, this is what we should be doing, setting up situations for people to learn. Cause it's all, he comes from this experience place. Like we mm-hmm. you've learned through experiences and our job as teachers is to craft these experiences or create these experiences for students, for them to learn through solving problems and figuring things out and setting up perplexity, you know, so that the students work towards, you know, learning something. And he's, he, you know, he's not that interested in getting, correct answers he's interested in all about you know setting up thought and setting up you know rational thought right like he's a big believer in this reflective thought rational thought you know teaching kids to think because he you know no that's right that was central to his whole mission and and connecting it to um you know sort of regimented or structured thought, right? So he talks about inquiry a lot. And he ta- he talks about inquiry in a way that I think is different, really. It's more fundamental than we do when we talk about inquiry in science. It's really just about how we investigate or or think about the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, his, his he, while you're reading that, it reminded me of another one that we have on our list of quotes, which is um, one from How We Think. And he said, the problem is to protect the spirit of inquiry, to keep it from becoming blasé from overexcitement, wooden from routine, fossilized through dogmatic instruction, or dissipated by random exercise upon trivial things. Like another one, it's like just such a succinct characterization of basically everything we do in schools, right? Yeah. So um, the the blase from overexcitement is the you know the the death march with fun sauce, and um, you know uh, it the dissipated by random exercise upon trivial things. I think is just so much characterizes how we how schools operate today. It is just it's staggering to me. I I hear 
study island that's what i, when I hear that. study <laughs> island it's like ah, oh. i mean you're familiar with that right yeah of course you are yeah. and you know or all of its brethren right it's like oh gosh is that really what we want to do you know yeah. yeah yeah no i mean i there well you know as i was saying a second ago i mean i think i hear so much in that i hear I hear um, Class Dojo in that. I hear Khan Academy in that. I hear right. so many things about the way that we think education Adaptive learnings. Oh. oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you yeah. know, computers know more about us than we do. So that's the beautiful thing about them. Right. And we just give them more of our data and, mm-hmm. you know. So they can know more about us. Right. And we're trading that for uh, tailored questions for our students. Right. You know. Mm. Well, we won't go down there. We'll put a pin in that for yeah, another we'll put day. We'll put a pin in all that. Yeah. But, um, but this, I, I think this idea of, but I think that the other thing that that quote brings out for me is, is this sort of razor's edge that you walk with perplexity or with the, you know, the spirit of inquiry, right? Which is to say, um, it's, it's very hard as a teacher to negotiate that for a whole class, right? Right. Um, because you know, what is perplexing or engaging or how, whatever word you want to use, I really don't like engage, but, but, um, to one kid is not necessarily to another. So there, so there is this, like, how do you figure out how to organize a classroom in a way that, that creates basically community level perplexity where everybody is trying to, to solve a problem because they're interested in solving the problem, not because they're being told it's an interesting problem, but because they believe it to be an interesting problem. Um, And doing that as a teacher, like setting up an environment where that is, is what kids are doing is sort of the pinnacle of what we're trying to talk about. Right. Which is we're, we're trying to solve a real problem that we're interested in. Right. Um, And, and we're using, we're using approaches and techniques that are scientific, but, but the important thing is that we're, we're invested in this, that we're perplexed and we want to have an answer. Uh, but I think Dewey talks about this. Like he, mm-hmm. he recognizes how hard this is, but he also yeah. recognizes how important it is because uh, jumping at, to, a, to another quote, he, he here's, in experience in an education experience he he writes this he says and he talks about what what teachers have to do he mm-hmm. says we need to be able to to judge what attitudes are actually actually conducive to continued growth and what are detrimental he teach he and he, mm-hmm. I, yeah, he's saying teachers yeah, he yeah, yeah, yeah. he must in addition have the sympathetic understanding of individuals as individuals which gives him an idea of what is actually going on in the minds of those who are learning Without this insight, there's only an accidental chance that the material study and the methods used in instruction will so come home to an individual that his development of mind and character is actually directed. So he's like, you got to know your kids. You got to know your kids and what makes them tick in order to be able to, you know, sort of figure out what types of things you want to set up in the classroom to, to foster that perplexity. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's that's the em- empowering thing. That's like, I mean, for you know our teacher ed program at at, at Millersville, which you know the institution I work at, we, you know we've tried to, to structure our, our our you know internship year so that they know their kids more. You know, we they spend you know th- uh, you know three days a week out in the in the schools in the, in the fall, and they're out there every day of the week in the spring. 
Um, so they do this PDS experience, this professional development school, and it's built on you got to know kids. You got to know kids. You got to know your kids. You got to be able to, you know, figure out the stuff that makes them tick so that you can help to draw on that into your, your lessons. And, and I think that's where the perplexity stuff comes in because you can't just like throw out something. And this comes, I think, back to, you know, the stuff that you're talking about with, you know, amb ambitious science teaching, right? Is that, you know, it can't just be problems that we're throwing out to students. It's got to be stuff that's important to them. And, you know, I think that, that echoes back to it too. Yeah. And that, I think that is the, um, that's the tension that I think not just ambitious science teaching, but, but the, these general approaches to science teaching have to grapple with. Cause there, there is a, a sense of like the only way to really do this is to engage students in authentic problems that they yep. identify but that is incredibly difficult on a, on an ind individual level, right? Because it happened, it can't, you know, in, in theory, if you're doing that, it can't even happen on the, the, uh, the sort of teacher level. So like I teach physics and all my physics students are doing X, like you would have to do that at the very least, probably class by class. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it runs counter to the whole way we think about um, teaching in, in the sense of like, you know, even now, Open Syed, all these organizations are producing curriculum, but curriculum are fundamentally antithetical to that notion, right? Like if you have a curriculum that has a problem and has and rolls it out for students, you're not engaging them in their own problems. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. In fact, I'm saying I think that's a great step in the direction that we're trying to go to. But I think you know, the fundamental problem is, is if we have standards and we talked about NGSS and, and all that, if we say like every kid needs to know a certain set of things, it is very difficult to make science classrooms be about emergent phenomenon and questions that kids are interested in investigating, because that's not going to get you to all the things you need to help them understand if there's a list of things. So, so there are so many, so many pressures in our educational system against this kind of stuff. Uh, again, sorry, I should be clear against the, the idea of really experientially driven mm -hmm. uh, science teaching the way that, that Dewey at least talks about it in the abstract. Um, and I, you know, I'd be interested in how well or how much the lab schools actually accomplish this. Cause I actually don't know that much about the lab schools and their curriculum. And, you know, I know some, you know, the, the summer Hill and some of these very experimental schools uh, where it was sort of, it, that were literally like this, right? Like kids just did what they wanted to do and that's how they learned. Um, you know, and those were deeply problematic in other ways. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's such an interesting challenge to say, well, we really want kids to investigate their own problems, but we also want to hold schools to some sort of standard. And right. so how do you, how do you think about that? And, that? and I think a lot about that from the standpoint of we, we have these standardized tests, you know, we have, you know, like you say, these, uh, the, the curriculum you have been, you've been working with the state on the new uh, science standards. So there yeah. are these sort of standardized expectations for what our students achieve or meet. And, and, and which I, I think is, I mean, where do you think Dewey would stand on that? Like if Dewey were looking today at these, you know, standardized, I mean, we have like right now when we're recording this, this is like um, 
in the midst of AP testing in school. So we're like a couple of weeks out of yeah. when this episode will drop. So AP tests. And, and so I, I know some, some of my, um, some of my friends, kids are taking AP tests and yep, there's right. And so it's a defined curriculum. It's a defined curriculum so much so that like when I was teaching AP physics, I gamed it. I knew, you know, I would say to my students, there's like a, you know, a 40% likelihood that you're going to get a problem like this. Looking at the test from the last 20 years, you know, this came up 40% of the time. You need to know this and this, and, and, but that was, and, you know, it's like, I sold my soul to the AP tests, but my students did well. Right. And so that's the tension. There's, there's the tension in itself. Right. Cause there was no, there was no labs on the AP test, the AP physics test, it was APC. So they were taking two tests, you know, one in electricity and magnetism and one in mechanics. And they're pretty prescribed. Like you can say, okay, there is going to be a problem that involves an integral that uses on the electricity and magnetism. There's going to be some, you know, Gauss's law problem on there that does this. You like, there's a, you know, was a 57% chance or whatever of it happening. And so it's like, and so I would start with those when in the lead up to the test, you know, that was what I would do. I would just Mm -hmm. practice problem, practice problem, practice problem, because Mm -hmm. it was all guided on this, you know, at the time, I think probably like 75 bucks to take the AP test and the students wanted to do well. And how do you do well? You focus on that level of, of trivial stuff. It's not trivial, but it, it is a prescribed curriculum. It is a prescribed curriculum. And there are benchmarks for success that are defined and they're not based on problems of that the students have chosen. They're not based on, you know, developing their, you know, rational thought or reflection. It is like, almost to the point of, and I wouldn't even say they're problem solving per se. It's like understanding like the different, different types of problem solving, yeah. right. And knowing when to apply them, yeah. you know, it's heuristics and, and it's heuristics. It's, absolute, just, right. yeah. it's yeah. absolutely heuristics and, and also, you know, gaming it. it, was and, absolutely and, it ga- and I think it is trivia. I mean, I think that is the thing that we have to get our heads around is that it is trivia um, and it's trivia for a purpose. I mean, we don't have to agree with the purpose, but, but um, you know, this, when we talk about systemic things, like this came up, we were talking about this last time, this sort of like anti-racist, the analogy of right. anti-racism to this, um, you know, anti sort of something cognitivism, right? This idea that there is a list of facts that you need to know and the way to learn those facts is to memorize them. And that is trivia, right? There is no other way that that's what trivia night is about is memorizing a bunch of things uh, to be recalled later. So I think, I think it is. And I think, I think the challenge is to provide an alternative um, but the but the big challenge is that any alternative a- automatically has to operate within the system at least yep. initially and the system is not built for anything other than what it's built for it's you know the old the old saw about the system produces what it's designed to produce and we complain about the system producing those things but we designed the system to produce those things like standards produce certain things tests like the AP or the standardized exams they produce certain things They produce teachers who want to game the system, who want to have their kids perform well. And that can be because they want their kids to be successful, or it can be because if their kids aren't successful, those teachers are going to lose their jobs. Right. But there's all sorts of systemic 
subtle and not very subtle pressures that that reinforce the system that make the system stay in place and if, and if we think that that system doesn't exist and we can just wave our hands and say okay let's just have experiential education where kids investigate their own problems um that's just incredibly naive so this idea of of how do we think about education as a system and um and and really try to think about what are the underlying assumptions that we have to to unearth and potentially dismantle if we want to change the way that schools operate. Well, I think coming back to John Dewey, I think he yes. provides a, a clue to this because he, he writing in Democracy and Education, he says, we're all instructors to realize that the quality of, of mental process, not the production of correct answers, is the measure of educative growth. Would It would be something hardly less than a revolution in in teaching would be worked. So he's yeah. saying, if we focus not on the correct answers, but instead on the quality of mental processes, the quality of thought, the quality of reflection, then there, therein lies the revolution in teaching. And, and this is from 120 years ago. Yeah. And, and we're still facing the same sorts of challenges. And I would say even more so now, because, you know, while, you know, the early 1900s, you know, 1910, 1920s, whatever, you know, had a pretty prescribed curriculum, there was still, you know, it's, it's, we didn't have the, the AP test, we didn't have state, like the state standards and state curriculum, that is a, that's a pretty recent thing in terms of, you know, this is no child left behind stuff. Right. So this is all within the last, like, 20, 30 years, you know, state testing. That's a, that's something that is, I mean, maybe if some States had it, but not, not 50 States, yeah. you know, we had like, you know, New York state, New York state had the regions tests, mm-hmm. you know, so if not you were, everybody took this, right. Not everybody took it now in order to graduate, you have to, you have to take, we have to do these benchmark tests throughout the, and then we have, you know, in Pennsylvania keystone exams, they have to have keystone exams in at least X number of classes, you know, to be mm-hmm. able to, and it's it's now an industry. It is has moved so far from just thought to correct answers that it's um yeah it's going to be a bigger revolution than it would have been in Dewey's time. Yeah, and and you know the interesting thing is all that um, all that prescription and standardization was at least superficially uh, done for equity reasons. Like they yeah. said, this we're doing this because some schools are supporting their kids learning better than others. And we need to know which ones those are now, of course, then they say, well, what we're going to do once we identify them is punish the ones that are doing a bad job instead of right. saying, oh, well, the purpose of this is to understand where we need to reallocate resources and support schools that uh, are not able to support their kids very well because they don't have the resources they need. No, that's not what we did. What we did yeah. is we said, oh, no, we're going to test them. And then when they're not doing well, we're going to punish them by giving them less to work with and fewer resources. Or coming and taking over the school yeah. or changing the leadership or mm-hmm. You know, getting rid of the school boards or putting them on, you know, double secret probation or whatever. And yeah. Yeah. And that's that's great. That's that's yeah. so bravo. So, so I think I think this it's definitely time to shift to joys because <laughs> we, we should we shouldn't have I, I shouldn't have taken us down that dark path. When you just finished with that quote, I think that was really nice uh place to finish with John Dewey for the moment. And then I went and made it, you know, into this bad thing. No, but I think that it's sort of the 
I think it's sort of like in the ethos of the show is that you and I both recognize the challenges in education, but also are people that are so invested in it too. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sort of like duality is so critical to like how we see things, not in just in science, but in education in general. And and so science education and in education in general. So I think it's sort of born into the ethos of the show. Sort, sort of like we're in between. Yes. Look at you. Thank you. Scott, Thank you. I am so proud of you. That just, that made my day right there. That, there that could joy. be my joy. That could be my it joy. could be, but it's not going to be. It, it's you uh, have a better joy. Yes, I do. I do have a better joy. And it's a podcast this week. Um, okay. So I, there's been some shows that uh, are reoccurring um, that, you know, each, each, ep- like, I'll just say it, Slow Burn is my slow podcast. Slow Burn, okay. Nice yeah, one. so if you're not familiar with uh, Slow Burn, it's produced by Slate. And they're now on, you know, season five, I guess, is, um, so each season covers a different thing in history and, and takes a look at it from different perspectives. So like uh, season one, I think was, Gosh, they focused on the first season was on Watergate. Season two was on the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Season three, which was one of my favorites, was on the tension between Tupac and uh, the notorious B.I.G. Season four was on David Duke. And season five is on the lead up to the Iran Iraq war. Um, And so each season covers another thing in, in history something that we have a little bit of distance from and then, you know, examines it. So we're, we're, you know, in the midst of uh, season five and it's, it's on the Iraq war. But the interesting thing to me is how much the stuff is, you know, bound by history. So we're looking back like 20 X years in some cases or, or more, but you just hear like little glimpses of today in it too. And that to me is, I think the brilliant part about it is like, you know, the David Duke stuff was just like, it's, you know, that stuff was happening in the 1980s and 1990s, but I just kept hearing all of, you know, 2020 in it as I was listening to it last year. Yep. Um, and so, and, and they don't do it from the standpoint of, you know, they don't make that clear to you. They don't give like, hey, right. no, it's, it's they don't beat you over the head with that. No, no, it's so, so subtle. And I think that's what makes it so great is that you as a listener, you can't help but make those connections without necessarily being led by by the hand there. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. brilliant. Slow burn. It's a good one. I like it. Um, so I'm going to. Um, I'm going to do, well, actually real quickly, I'm just going to say Jane Adams of Hull House. That's who I was thinking of. Jane Adams, shout out. uh, And she was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in 1931. So I think maybe- In what areas? uh, That's a great question. I don't know. I assume- Well, well, I'll I'll check that out. Okay. You figure that out why. Um, but she was, didn't work on the lab school. She worked on Hull House, which, which was a, a house for immigrants in Chicago, but she was an intellectual partner of John Dewey's. And a lot of his thinking was influenced by her thinking in the way that she, or her thinking vice versa. They were, they were intellectual partners. Um, so I just want to, I want to give her credit, um, and, and re- remind myself of her importance, but, um, but that said, I'm going to pick a thematic uh, joy that's actually 
I'm setting from the way, way back machine. So I haven't read this book in a while. Uh, it came out in 2002, but it's called The Metaphysical Club, A Story of Ideas in America. Um, and if you haven't read it, I mean, it's, a, it's a great book. It's not just my opinion. It won the Pulitzer Prize for history in the year that it was published. It's by Louis Menand. And it is about um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, William James, Charles Sanders Peirce, and John Dewey. Um, and it's it's just about that time in the in Massachusetts in the, in the late 1800s, um, in and about how they're these um, you know guys, white guys, of course, um, like were intellectually uh, influencing each other in tremendously powerful ways and in ways that are fundamental the way that our country is organized and thinks about itself. So I think it's, it's a great book. It's really well-written. It's, 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 uh, it's history, but it feels very much like a story. It's very, you know, just very engaging and it's a, it's a wonderful book. So if you don't know a lot about the John Dewey or any of those, cause he was really an heir to them. He was, um, he was William James's student. Um, so, uh, but anyway, great book, well worth it. Um, and, uh, and it brought me joy. At least I remember it bringing me joy when I read it. So I'm going to, I'm going to maybe reread that maybe this summer I'll revisit, uh, the metaphysical club. So coming back, circling back to Jane Adams, Adams, yes. A-D-D-A-M-S. So yep. not yep. Two D, sort of the double D double D with Jane Adams. And, uh, she received, she was the second woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Peace so she, Prize, of course. So, so the Peace Prize in 1931 for her work uh, with immigrants yeah. um, for the assiduous effort to, assiduous, I guess is the right word, mm-hmm. assiduous effort to revive the ideal of peace and rekindle the spirit of peace in their own nation and the whole of mankind. That's what the actual... Yeah. Peace Prize. And, and very uh, relevant in the sense that her work was focused on how to basically welcome immigrants to this country, right? Um, which, you know, feel, feels like a timely uh, reminder of, of like in 1872 or 1850, whatever, she was doing this kind of work in Chicago. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, uh, it was 1900s, but. Well, just... that's when she won the award, but I think right. she started doing the work at the end of the 1800s All right. so she won the prize in 1931 but you don't usually win the prize in the year that you're doing the work sure. why didn't yeah all right we'll, come on we'll, yeah we'll, we'll bicker yeah. about this later sure yeah, i don't but know jane adams friend of the show i'm gonna say friend it. Just, of the show just said it right she, right there yeah, friend of the show we have John to have Dewey. a we have to have sort of a list of who the folks are who are friends of the show because not everybody can be a friend of the show no. but if you're working towards peace with immigrants yeah. Then you're a friend you're on, of the show. You're on our list. You're on we're the on list. You've made list. it. Yeah. Yeah. If you founded Hull House in 1889, which is before 1900, I'm just oh. <laughs> uh, then you're a friend of the show. I, I, I see what you did there. I like <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, Thank you. Know. Yeah. Thank so you. that's, I think, probably a good place to, uh, yeah, end this, end this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think episode. so too. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. We'll see you next time. In between. See you then.